Hi, I'm Ryan Becker, and you're listening to the Rock Hill Seventh-day Adventist Church Official Sermon Archive. You can find more information about our church at www.rockhillsdachurch.org. We hope by listening to this message that you are encouraged and challenged in your walk with Christ. In the early thousands, something was started that would come to be known today as the War on Christmas. This is said to have started when major corporations began to email out to their employees to not say Merry Christmas around the office out of respect for those who do not celebrate Christmas. Now, the quote-unquote war likely started long before then in smaller individual doses, but it wasn't until people were really ordered to start saying Happy Holidays instead at work that it really began to get heated and find notoriety. This is what gave the war its mainstream media presence. All it took beyond this was some news channels picking up on the memos and running story after story around the holidays to establish that Christmas was really under siege. Now what I find interesting about the war on Christmas is that it has now descended into every single sphere of public life, no matter how small. See, it's no longer just about what is said around the holidays, but now it would become about how you act and as a corporation, how you design. If you put Hanukkah displays out before Christmas displays, your organization is attacked. If families put out displays that weren't explicitly Christian, they would receive threats or be ostracized in their communities. Every time anybody celebrated anything other than Christmas, it was seen on an attack on Christianity in general. And it's very important to note here that none of those offended by the war ever seemed to care about whether or not someone celebrated Jesus Christ on Christmas Day, only that they celebrated Christmas itself over any other holiday. In 2015, we witnessed the war on Christmas combined with a huge social media network in the form of Twitter and Facebook, and we recognized the damage that these two things could do. Starbucks, the coffee company, released their official holiday cup that didn't have any Christmas designs on it. It was simply a red cup. There were no snowflakes, holly, presents, Christmas trees, etc. on the cup. Just a simple red cup. And people took to social media with the aim to boycott Starbucks for their insulting attack on Christianity. It was an attack on Christmas, not by singling Christmas out, but it was an attack of silence. Because Starbucks wasn't explicitly for Christmas, it must mean they are against it. With this growing narrative of offense and Christians being on guard for fear of losing public relevancy or the nation becoming less Christian, Christians of all denominations have put themselves into a corner. They see the secularism all around and see Christmas as a casualty of a growing post-Christian society. So my question today is, how do you and I deal with the war on Christmas individually? What do we do about it, and what does the war on Christmas have to do with my life as an individual Christian wanting to celebrate the birth of my Savior? So to answer these questions, I want to take a look at the birth of Jesus and all the circumstances around it. And so to go into this, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to work a little bit backwards today, and so we're going to start in Matthew chapter 2, verse 12. Now, up to this point, Jesus has been born. The wise men have heard of his birth from an angel appearing before him, and they have approached Herod, asking, Where is the king of the Jews? 
Herod, being the current king, was put off by this wording. If a new king was born, this was a direct threat to his reign, but he played the game. So he sent the wise men to find the child that was born and send word back to Herod so that Herod could, quote, worship the child as well. So they go. And this is what we now know as the nativity scene that we see in decorations all across the holiday season, where the wise men approach Mary, Joseph, and Jesus and offer their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And this is where we pick up the story starting in verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the, children, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So the angels warned the wise men and Jesus' family to flee because of what Herod is about to do. They listen. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus flee to Egypt while the wise men simply leave a different way than they came in order to avoid having to return to Herod. So now let's continue reading in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Herod is angry at being tricked, so to speak, and seeks to out to have this threat to his reign and empire removed. So he orders the slaughter of every child, since he has no clue how to find the one baby that is this going to be this supposed king. He has no clue who this baby's family is, and he has no clue who the baby is. So he puts to death all of them. To say this is a tragedy is an understatement. But it's so easy for us to read this and just say, well, that's how that time period was. Because one king has a power trip and a fragile ego. He orders the death of every baby two years or younger in an entire region. This was devastating. And the reason we read this before we look at the verses put in the scripture reading for this entire sermon is because we need to understand something very significant about the historical context surrounding Jesus's birth. To be a Jew was to believe there would one day be a king who would literally overthrow Rome and establish Judaism as the religion, establish Israel as the chosen and, and, and biggest nation in power. And as long as Jews didn't stir up too much trouble in Rome, they were safe. But if they ever stirred up any trouble, they would be cut down in an instant. Jesus' very existence was a threat to the most powerful nation and empire in the world at the time, which means that if the Jews were to learn of his existence, they would have to keep it a total secret for fear of any persecution. In fact, for those families who lost their children, they were likely given no reason other than by decree of the king. As far as they knew, Herod had their child killed 
just because he could, and for no other reason. And they were absolutely powerless to stop it. This is what it was like to be a Jew, that the king could order the death of any member of your family or your entire family, and you had no power to change it. In fact, Jesus was able to be crucified later in his life because the Pharisees touted him as a threat to the Roman Empire and constantly tried to trap him or trick him into speaking out something treasonous. In the decades following Jesus' resurrection and time on earth, those who would claim him as their savior would face persecution unto the point of death. Peter was crucified upside down, John was sent into exile on Patmos, and countless Christians sent into hiding for fear of being put to death publicly in the Colosseum. This is what it was like to be an early Christian, that you were in hiding and that thousands upon thousands of Christians were killed for simply believing in this Jesus. This is the picture of history around the time of Jesus. With that historical context in mind, from the immediate circumstances surrounding Christ's birth to the lives of his followers after his ascension, let's now look at Matthew chapter 1. You see, we needed to lay all of this foundation in order to fully understand the gravity of what we are about to read. Now we enter Matthew chapter 1 and Joseph is panicking. He doesn't want to be a father, but Mary is pregnant, but he and her never had relations, so his natural conclusion is that she has cheated on him. He cares for her, so he resolves quietly to divorce her and protect, to protect her dignity and allow her and the baby a shot at a solid future. He didn't want the world thinking that she had committed adultery or anything because that would ruin her life and the baby's life. And so, with that knowledge, we start reading in verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel. This name signifies this one thing. Part of the Trinity gave up being God to enter into our experience. The hour, you and me. But to the Jew in Jesus' time, Jesus entered into the experience of the people who didn't hold the political power, who did not have a say in politics, who had no say in public policy, who had no say in how things happened. A king could walk in and kill them on the spot for no reason. This is the experience Jesus entered into. He entered into the experience of the people hurting. He entered into the experience of the minority that he might save as many as possible. Isaiah 53 shares a prophecy which shares what this would be like for him. It says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone 
to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Somehow, since the time of Jesus, Christianity moved from being the endangered minority to the ones who are now able to be outraged over the color of a coffee cup. Our experience of persecution is so limited that we have actually started looking for excuses to cry out persecution. In our Adventist eschatology, or belief about the end of the world, the end times, we are led to believe that persecution will come again in different forms. And so even as Adventists, we are looking at society with the eyes of hawks, just waiting to cry foul at any perceived slight. And on the surface, there's really nothing wrong with looking for the fulfillment of prophecy. But listen, if you are a part of the group that gets to pick and choose your persecution, you are the group that is privileged. I am not saying that there aren't legitimate moves in society to press past Christianity or to suppress Christianity, but the fact that any part of the world can be described as safely Christian is incredibly significant. The fact that we as Americans here can say we are safely Christian. The early Christians would see the privilege we have now and be filled with jealousy because this is the kind of recognition in the public sphere they would long for. Because if a Christian spoke out against an entity because it was offensive to their beliefs in Rome, they'd be killed on the spot. If they saw someone selling something in the marketplace that went against their beliefs, they were not able to say anything to stop it. Because if they did, they would out themselves, out their family, out their friends, and they would be killed. And yet now we can do it on Twitter and Facebook, and we get to impact the stock market. So what does all of this have to do with the war on Christmas? Jesus says in John thirteen thirty four, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus loved us by entering into our experience when we were at our lowest, when Jews and Christians weren't allowed to be fully themselves. And now we are so obsessed with the persecution narrative that we have forgotten the most important part of Jesus entering our experience. He calls us to enter into the experiences of others, just like he entered ours, not to stop their experience. He calls us to love others, not to victimize ourselves. So if you haven't caught on within the context of the gospel, that God himself has entered our experience to the point that we call him God with us. This should show us what the real significance of the war on Christmas is, which is this. It's not all that significant. If you are spending your holiday season defending a God who never asked for your defense and only asked for your love, then you've missed the point. We are called to love like Jesus loved. So this holiday season, regardless of someone's faith, background, or life, how will you look at their life Enter into it and meet them exactly where they are, the way that Jesus has met you exactly where you are. To cover all of my bases here, maybe you don't care about the war on Christmas at all. Maybe you spend the holidays doing your own thing and minding your own business. Well, this will sound harsh. But I find it ironic that we would mind our own business while trying to celebrate the incarnation of a God who wouldn't mind his own. In fact, he made us his business. Now, I could leave you with, hey, you should enter into the experience of someone else this season. 
and that'd be great, but it wouldn't actually give you a concrete idea of what that looked like. And so I want to share with you two stories that happened just recently that I think gives a, a clear picture of what this looks like. The first happened just a few weeks ago when I was in Chattanooga. My girlfriend and I were eating at a restaurant, a Mexican restaurant, and next to us was this uh, huge party, this huge birthday party for kids around five years old. Uh, the kids were young enough that one of the girls was amazed that you could squeeze the ketchup bottle and ketchup would come out. And all of the kids were gathered on one side of the table except one little girl. This little girl was sitting at the end of the table with her, with her kitty cup, with the straw sticking out, and she was drinking away. And I looked over, and I saw her and noticed that she had burn marks all over her body. She had been the victim of some sort of accident, and it was recent enough that she still wore a, a neck brace, I'm assuming to keep her skin on her, her neck straight or otherwise. I, I'm not sure exactly what the, the process is there, but it, it seemed to happen quite recently. And all of the kids were on another side of the table having a blast, and she was sitting there alone. No one came over to talk to her. In fact, one kid ran over just to pick something up from the table and then ran back to the other side. No one was talking to her. No one was including her. This is someone who was alone, and she was maybe five years old. You know, I love, sometimes kids really get the love and in their innocence for someone else and, and not judging someone for their experience. But sometimes kids can be harsh. And you could see it on this girl's face that she was alone, that she was scared, that she felt rejected. This is what it looks like to be so caught up in your own experience that you miss the experience of someone else. Now I want to share the opposite, and this has actually happened to a friend of mine who's a pastor in Asheville, North Carolina, and he shared this this story he experienced just recently on Facebook. And I'm going to read exactly what he put in his status so that, so that you understand it from his point of view. He says, I eat at the Golden Corral like once a year. After grocery shopping this evening, I saw the glowing sign on the rainy way back home beckoning me. Not being in the mood to actually cook the things I'd purchased, I gave in. I paid and headed for the salad bar. Seriously, it's the section I use as an emotional absolution for the deeds I'm about to commit as the meal progresses. As I turned the corner, my eye was caught by the ubiquitous red hat with white lettering, Make America Great Again. My first thought, given the location I was in, was that the things keeping America from being great might be closer to home than Washington, D.C. scapegoats. But then the details came into focus. He was an old man with thick suspenders over a worn flannel shirt. He sat alone at his table with one hand grasping a spoon hovering in the space between the, a bowl of soup and his hunched overhead. In the split second I was looking, he raised his other gnarled hand, covered his face, and began to weep. I felt a knot in my throat and a compulsion to go over to him, but I didn't. I didn't want to embarrass him. After piling some sacramental vegetables on my plate, I snuck a look in his direction to see how he was doing and trying to decide if I should approach him. As I turned, a waitress just as old and worn as him quickly moved toward his grief-constricted form and, without missing a beat, wrapped her arms around him and just held him as he cried. This is what it looks like to enter into someone's experience. And to this pastor in Asheville, 
you know, he wasn't a, a big Trump supporter. And so to see the Make America Great Again hat was hard for him to find sympathy or empathy with the person who was wearing it. But Jesus entered into the experience of people who may have disagreed with him, people who would eventually even reject him. And Jesus has said, love one another as I have loved you. That way the world will know that you are my disciples. So my call to you this holiday season in light of the birth of the one we call Emmanuel, God with us, is that you would find someone in your life, a neighbor, a family member, a friend, a stranger, whoever, and you would enter into their experience exactly where they are. This is the true spirit of Christmas, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. May we embrace that attitude toward those around us this holiday season.